Ah, hello, and welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon. On this show, what happens is, well, one, I'm listening to my own voice right now, and I definitely realize that you can hear that I have a bit of a cold. Yes, I apologize for my nasal tones during this episode. Uh, What happens is uh, Callum writes me a script. This one is the Velisca Axe Massacre. Velisca is a tiny town. I tried to find the pronunciation to it, and all I found was a very weird YouTube video with a robot voice going, Veliska. And it got like eight downvotes and zero upvotes. So I was like, I don't know if I'm saying it right or wrong, but uh, normally, I mean, I have to say I don't make a ton of effort with pronunciations. Shocking, I know. But I generally do look it up if it's the title of the piece. And so I hope it is pronounced Veliska. There's probably about four people who live in Veliska, so it's not very likely that anyone listening to this episode is going to be from there. In which case, but if they are, I, I apologize. Uh, I guess. Uh, Callum writes me a script. This one is the Velisca Axe Murderers. Massacre. Sorry, not murderers. There was only one. And I'm going to read it. It's called A Cold Read. I've never read it before. We're going to learn something together. And uh, then afterwards, Jen, our wonderful editor, is going to add in some music, some images. If you watch this show, yeah, it's available as a podcast, but also as a YouTube channel. Yes. You can, if you're watching, if you're listening to this right now, you can see me read this and see some images. Isn't that brilliant? Oh my God, I sound so nasally. Let's just crack on with it, shall we? Halloween, the only time of year when it's acceptable to dress infants up like blood-spattered serial killers or to stumble in on Harley Quinn getting off with Count Dracula in a nightclub toilet. Truly, this is one of our greatest cultural achievements. After witnessing the carnage and terror of the season, I was inspired to dig for a story which draws upon all the best elements of All Hallows' Eve. Bloody violence, creepy... (laughs) Wait. Callum's writing this as if this episode is going to come out anywhere near Halloween. I'm sorry, what are you talking about? I'm recording this on the 28th of October. There is absolutely no chance that this is coming out before Halloween. <laughs> it probably won't even have finished uploading by the time Halloween is here. I, I'm sorry, Callan. You gave this to me yesterday, though. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? No one told me. Bloody violence, creepy legends, and, of course, a good old-fashioned haunted house. And not the kind of haunted house where underpaid teenage actors in zombie makeup try to give you jump scares. I'm talking about a proper horror house with proper horror credentials. I went to, uh, what they, you know, one of those proper... I don't know what a proper horror house is to Callum, but I remember like Houses of Horror when I was a kid, you know, I'd just be like, oh, there's like automated ghosts and stuff, and it wasn't very scary. Also, there was the one where you sit in like a cart and it drives you round at the fair, but I went to one as an adult, and it was like called a fear house or something, and it had like actors, and it was proper scary. Like there was a dude chasing you around the place with a chainsaw, like, but like a proper chainsaw, not like an acting chainsaw that makes like growling sounds. It was like, I guess, a chainsaw without the blade on it. And it was terrifying because you're like, oh my God, what if this is that time where the guy goes mad and he decides to put the chain on the chainsaw and you're like, oh, this is funny. Oh, this really hurts. Oh my God, you've cut off my legs. Extremely unlikely, but you're like, oh my God, maybe this is that time. Martha and Darwin Lynn had no idea that this was the kind of house they were buying when they sealed the deal on 508 East 2nd Street back in 1994. The quaint little farmhouse in Villisca, Iowa is much like any other of the little 19th century wooden farmhouses across the Midwest, bar the fact that this particular lot had been abandoned for some time and was on the brink of being condemned. The couple plans on renovating their new piece of real estate into a small town museum, a life-size diorama of what the American dream might 
might have been like for the average family at the start of the 20th century. What they weren't aware of was that the family who actually lived there back in those days met a nightmarish end. It wasn't long before that horrific legacy revealed itself to the new owners. Soon after starting work on the property, Martha and Darwin started receiving visitations. Oh no. It's oh okay, from nut jobs. Every other day I thought <laughs> Callum definitely led me down the path of, oh god, are we talking about ghosts? But no, it wasn't visitations, it was more like visitors. From nutjobs, every other day, there would be a knock at the door from some amateur ghostbuster or self-anointed psychic. I think all psychics are self-anointed, there's no like official psychic body, and if there is, there shouldn't be, because it's obviously nonsense. And they didn't have the good manners to say trick or treat. Their credentials may have been laughable, Callum and I same page, but the story they came to share was no joke. As they listened to the warnings of these uninvited guests, the couple were forced to reckon with the fact that their idyllic little house actually held a lot of dark history in its walls. A brutalized body, strange rituals, a mad priest, and a mystery that will haunt this little town in Iowa for the rest of its existence. This is the story of the Velisca Axe Murders. This is the thing. If I was with these people, I'd be like, sweet, I got a bargain on the murder house. Because I'm like, I mean, unless it's very recent and the person who's killed the family in the house or whatever said like, I will be back to kill all the other families who move into this house. I'll be like, wait, this house is like half the price of the other houses because someone was murdered there? That is my house. People would be like, it's haunted though. And I'm like, that's what keeps your stupid brain from getting a deal. And then my family would be killed. <laughs> Should have listened about the ghost, Simon. Should have listened, shouldn't you, Facts Boy? The Midnight Visitor. To discover why exactly a shadow hangs over that quaint little country home, we have to jump back almost 110 years to 1912. Sorry, 1912, I said it was 1914. I was watching these Velisca axe murder YouTube videos, trying to find out how to pronounce Velisca before starting this. Back then, 580 East 2nd Street. This is such a complicated name. Why do all American towns have this? It's like, yeah, you gotta go up like 4th and 9th. 308 4th and 9th Street. Why not just be like, it's 321 Break Street or whatever. It's not like, what, what's wrong with that? Uh, and it was a lovely family home occupied by the Moore family. Father Josiah, or Joe, was a respected local businessman. I have a brilliant story about the name Josiah. <laughs> brilliant story that only I will find interesting, but I will share with you. I was on a trip with a friend of mine, and his, he and his wife were expecting their first kid, and they were like, no, 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 we're keeping the name secret. And I'm like, mate, if I can guess the name, will you tell it to me? And he's like, you're not going to guess the name. And I'm like, okay, it's a name that is a little bit unusual. And I'm just like, is the name Josiah? Like, sarcastically. And my mate's like, dude, <laughs> his name is actually Josiah. And his name to this day is Josiah. And it was one of those incredible moments. My friend was like, how did you know? How did you know? And I'm like, dude, I just guessed a name that I thought was a bit like weird, but not too weird. <laughs> Anyway, Josiah was a respected local businessman. He and his wife, Sarah, had four children, Herman, 11, Catherine, 10, Boyd, 7, and the youngest, Paul, who was five. The family were beloved regulars at the Presbyterian Church just a few minutes down the street, which is where they spend the day on June the 9th, 1912. That Sunday, the church was holding a special festival for Christmas Day. Each of the Moore kids and their friends joined in by performing recitations for the congregation. The festival wrapped up around 9.30 p.m., which is when the Moors said goodbye to their friends and neighbors and walked back home. They were accompanied by two young girls who had a sleepover planned with daughter Catherine. They were the Stillinger sisters, 12-year-old Lena and 8-year-old Ina. 
They stayed up together for a few more hours, sharing a plate of cookies before turning in for the night. When the family settled in, they didn't even bother locking their doors. Nobody really bothered doing that, doing it back then, since the little railroad town of 2,500 rarely saw much trouble. Even if I'm in the middle of nowhere, I'm like out in the forest, completely alone. I'm always like, I'm always locking my door. <laughs> I'm always locking the windows because I'm like, yeah, there's no one around. Sounds like the perfect place for a murder. Everyone knew each other and thought that they had nothing to fear. Well, that was pre-June the 10th. Soon the residents of Villisca would have a very good reason to lock and bar every entryway and hide behind the sofa with a shotgun. That night, the Stillinger sisters took the guest room on the ground floor while the rest of the, fa rest of the family retired to the two bedrooms upstairs. As the clock struck midnight, this pleasant little domestic scene was about to turn into a blood-soaked nightmare. It was then that under the cover of total darkness, a stranger crept up to the door of the house, eased it open, and slipped inside. He spotted the outline of an oil lamp on the kitchen table. Carefully, he lifted it and twisted off the glass chimney from the top, then bent the wick so there would only produce a faint glow to navigate by. It would have been just enough light to illuminate the head of the axe, clutched in his left hand. This was Josiah's, lifted from a woodpile in the backyard. Yo, I feel like if you're gonna go axe murdering, like obviously like you're going to this person's house to do some like killing. Do you really find your weapon when you're there? I mean like if I'm doing premeditated murder, I mean tip, you know, we've got the casual criminalist like tip for criminals. <laughs> it's like, yo, if you're gonna go do some murdering, bring the weapon with you and have a plan to dispose of it afterwards because seems really obvious. And if you're doing it at night, how about bringing your own form of illumination? I would say like bring a flashlight or a torch. But uh, this is like the turn of the century, so bring your own gas lantern and a box of matches. Come on, don't be so disorganized. This axe-wielding spectre then crept down the ground floor corridor, passing by the room where the two sisters slept soundly. Carefully, he crept up the stairs and again walked right past the room where the more children slept. Somehow, he knew exactly where he was going. It was the door of parents Josiah and Sarah which creaked open first. Hovering by their bed, the axeman sat down the lantern and with both hands raised the axe high above his head. With all his force, he brought the blunt end crashing down onto Josiah's forehead, most likely killing him instantly yeah almost certainly killing him instantly sarah had only the briefest moment to react a wound on her arm suggested that she raised it to protect herself before the axe dropped on her skull too and i'm sorry to say on the way back downstairs the killer never passed by the other doorways the midnight visitor lingered for a while afterwards organizing the crime scene in a bizarre fashion before slipping out into the night and locking the doors behind him just like that he was gone as quick as he came so by never passing by the other doorways it means he went in and killed everyone right dude what i feel like often with these ones when we're going back like a hundred years i feel like we're more removed from the crime it's like when you talk about like you know ancient roman stuff and then it was like yeah and then they slaughtered ten thousand people and hung up their bodies in like these weird ways you're kind of like yeah rome was crazy but then if that happened like in some dictator's country like last year it feels way more like visceral and it shouldn't because it's still so horrible and even though this and this was like, even though this is a hundred years ago, you kind of imagine people all gas lanterns and axes and stuff. You're still like, yeah, he murdered their whole family. It doesn't make it any less horrific. It's like just time seems to dull it a little bit, which is weird. <laughs> people are probably listening now, being like, Simon, what are you talking about? This is horrific. It's as horrific as it happened yesterday. <laughs> okay, you're a bad person, fact boy. Just before we continue with today's video, let me tell you about one of its fantastic sponsors, Raycon. Yes, it's never too early to start gift shopping for the holidays, especially, well, because today you're going to be able to save big on a gift that they'll use every day. Raycon Wireless Earbuds. Yeah, I mean, who isn't using these things every day, like tuning into music, podcasts, whatever you're into? I am constantly, any moment I get, like, 
walking to work in the morning, walking to the tram, walking to the shops. Any moment, I'm just like plugging in and listening to some tunes or some podcasts. It's just great. With seamless Bluetooth pairing and a comfortable noise-isolating fit, you can start listening right away and keep listening for hours. The audio quality is amazing compared to what comparable to what you get uh, with other premium brands, except you're like, oh, it's just the same as other premium brands? Well, yes, except it's half the price. What? The new Everyday Earbuds come with three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. Pure mode, podcast listening, blues, instrumental, etc. Balanced mode, podcast listening, rock, heavy rock and metal. Bass mode, hip-hop, EDM, reggae. I think this is great because I often think like headphones are too focused on the bass. I think there's this misconception that everyone wants bass, bass, bass. And I'm like, I don't know. I quite like hearing the treble, you know? And it's nice to be able to choose. Raycon offers eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life, plus built-in mic so you can take calls. So, this holiday season, get your loved ones something they can use for calls or music for work or play at home or on the go. Or pick up a pair for yourself, of course. Trust me, you're going to use them every day, and so will whoever you buy them for. Go to buyraycon.com casual today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. But hurry, this offer is only available for a limited time only, and you don't want to miss out. That's buyraycon.com casual to unlock 20% off your Raycons. Buyraycon.com casual. And now back to today's episode. Several hours after sunrise on Monday morning, an elderly widow named Mrs. Peckman started to wonder why the Moore homestead was strangely quiet. She lived in the next house down the road and was used to hearing the sound of the kids shouting and playing from morning until night. She tried knocking to no avail and discovered that the door was locked. She decided to get in contact with Joe's brother, Ross, who worked at a drugstore in the town center. He arrived with a spare set of keys at 8 a.m. Right away, he agreed something was off. There was a sheet hanging over the glass in the doorway and more covering the windows. As he walked through the dining area, Ross noted a plate of uneaten food left on the table along with a bowl of murky water. Strangest of all, there were more sheets and pieces of clothing hanging over the mirrors in the hallway. What is up? This is so spooky. <laughs> Why are you doing this? And also, who murders a family and is like, ooh, time for a snack? Oh, I know. I know. Psychos, yes! Carnage Curio. He went to the bottom floor guest room, creaking... <laughs> I feel like that's something that people would say. It's like, yo, who has a meal after killing a whole family? And it's like, well, exactly the sort of same psycho who would kill a whole family, who kills like four children. That's the kind of guy who has a meal after killing four children. Because like eating the food is not the crazy part. He went to the bottom floor guest room, creaking the door open to reveal the outline of two bodies covered up with bloodstained bedsheets. That was plenty. Ross. Marshal Henry Hank Horton continued the search shortly after, and in the guest bedroom he noticed the axe leaning against the wall, still partially stained with blood. It was next to a strange red package wrapped in a towel. He disappeared upstairs to check the rest of the house and came out to report somebody murdered in every bed. Murdered feels like a severe understatement here, but I can understand that the level of brutality he just witnessed would have been hard to convey. See, the Axeman didn't just deal one fatal blow to each victim. After murdering Josiah in his sleep, he dealt a further 30 blows to his head. The post-mortem attack was so vicious that the sharp end of the axe was gouged into the ceiling. Good lord, what, just he... Oh my dude. Oh wait, I see. Like he was hitting him so repetitively and with such a wide arc that he hit the ceiling. That's so crazy. 
What is wrong with you? It's thought that the killer probably returned to do this after completing his first circuit of the bedroom so as not to risk waking anyone. He performed the bloody ritual a total of eight times over, which is one montage I'll pass on. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Callum. What came next was some kind of bizarre funeral ceremony, which could only made sense to the killer himself. He raised the sheets over the faces of some of the victims and covered the rest with clothes. He then rummaged through the drawers and closets, collecting sheets and clothing to cover every reflective surface in the house. Whatever he hoped to accomplish by that, it seems he left satisfied. The marshal, on the other hand, couldn't make sense of it. The crime was both weirdly maniacal and methodical. Probably just, I mean, this sounds like exactly the sort of thing that goes on, like someone's got someone, someone's got something broken in their brain. Like there's something wrong with them, whether it's like they think they're like there's ghosts in the mirrors or something. There's, they've got a mental disease. For example, the killer appears to have known exactly which bedroom to target first. They also knew that using the blunt end of the axe would prevent it from getting lodged in a wound and botching the whole thing. I sincerely hope none of you ever need to use this little tooltip. Yes, please don't. <laughs> please don't. Also, I, I, I was wondering why I used the blunt end, and now we know. Did, see, how do you learn that? You got He's probably done this, probably been some axe murdering before, or practicing axe murdering on some animals or some stuff, which is uh, great, great to know. This was a killer who came prepared, and he was willing to stay long enough to wrap up the demands of whatever outlandish logic was in their head. Wait, he didn't come that prepared. I was just talking earlier how he got the axe from outside the house and he didn't even bring a lamp. Some believe he was even so prepared that he was already in the house when the family got home, hiding in the attic, or alternatively an indent in some bales of hay in the barn suggested that he might have lain in wait there, watching them for hours through a knot hole in the wall. There's just one last mystery that remains about the crime scene. What was that package on the floor of the guest bedroom? It was about four pounds, and the towel wrapping it was soaked with a faint red liquid. Marshal Horton peeled back a corner of the stained linen and recoiled in horror at the sight of some bacon. Yes, it turns out the killer decided to lift a hunk of uncooked bacon out of the icebox and dump it there for no apparent reason. Alongside it was a small piece of metal, part of a keychain which never belonged to the family. If this was some kind of satanic ritual, it was a bloody strange one. I think it's just, this is all just crazy person. There's not going to be, I, I, I don't, I really, maybe there is, but I seriously doubt there's going to be some like turn in the story when it's like all of this makes perfectly logical sense and now we know why he did it. No, the explanation is going to be because he's a psycho. With all of that evidence left behind at the scene, including the half-cleaned murder weapon, you'd have hoped that the cops would have been able to glean something useful from the scene. Judging by the reddish tint, it appeared as if the killer washed his hands in that bowl of water on the table. But we're a few decades away from the DNA science that's needed to gain anything from that. Yes, many decades, the better part of a century away from that. In those days, it was all about good old-fashioned fingerprints. That's why the police detectives, minister, and coroner all trod carefully when they were called to the scene the morning of the discovery. Ah yes, the minister. <laughs> okay. Being careful not to disturb the crucial clues. As they each took turns processing the hellish scene left behind by the Axeman, a crowd of locals gathered outside. Rumors spread fast in a small town, and around a hundred people keen to take a look inside. As the investigators cleared the scene, they told the crowd it was absolutely crucial that they not disturb the crime scene. The very scales of justice and righteousness depended upon their restraint. So the crowd pinky promised that they'd only peer in from afar, and then as soon as the coroner's wagons turned the corner, a lot of them spilled inside and started gawking at the gore like a bunch of degenerate 4chan users. Before any fake print collection experts could get to the scene, these dark tourists had already smeared their filthy hands and shoe soles all over the place. Guys, 
I know this is the past, but you know that's not good, right? Also, police, do your job. There's been a family murder. It's like six people in this tiny town. What are you? What else are you up to? Just have someone outside being like, "Don't go in that house. Don't go. Don't cross that line. That police tape or whatever they had back then. Don't cross it. It says do not cross. Don't do it. Don't make me shoot you." One of them even decided to lift a little souvenir to remember the visit by. You're probably thinking a little piece of jewelry or maybe a family photo. No, this maniac pilfered a fragment of Josiah's shattered skull. You sicko, we need to be keeping an eye on you. The police will be like, yeah, yeah, well, we've got this murder. And also there's the guy who stole a piece of his skull. Let's put him on a list of some kind. Let's get a list going. In case any of you proper true crime diehards are wondering, no, you cannot find that piece of skull on eBay. If you were wondering that, check yourself. Just before we continue with today's video, a quick word from one of today's sponsors, StoryWorth. This holiday season, give a gift to loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationships we share. Well, that's nice. Uh, StoryWorth, what is it? Well, it's an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It's a thoughtful, meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter the most to you. How does it work? Well, every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend, the person you choose, a thought person you give the gift to, a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible question options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? These are good questions. This is, this is a really nice idea, like, just to talk about, like, my person, not my personal experience, because I haven't actually done this yet. I've got someone in mind who I want to give this to for Christmas. But I just feel like there's definitely people in my life who have now passed on, like, uh, elderly relatives, also not so elderly relatives, who I would have, I would really cherish having one of these for those people who've passed on. And obviously, it's a bit late for that. But the idea of giving this to someone now who, so, you know, in decades to come, that I would have something like this to look back on, I think that would be really nice. Because, I don't know, it's sometimes hard to remember everyone and people who you've lost. So I think this ad reader's got very morbid, and I should probably move back onto the talking points, but I think this is a really cool idea. After one year, StoryWorth will compile, compile all of your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. Yeah, and I'd love to show, like, that book to my kids. And I th this is a really nice idea. This is a really nice sponsor read. <laughs> uh, reading the weekly stories helps connect you with loved ones no matter how near or far apart you are. So, with StoryWorth, I'm giving those who I love the most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com casual. You'll save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com casual to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to today's episode. The Suspects For the first time in history, every door in Villisca was bolted shut, and every household in town was locked and loaded should the Axeman strike again. That day, the police had run a search of the town and the surrounding countryside, scouring it for any outsiders who might seem suspicious. The leading theory was that the attack was the work of a vagrant or a drifter passing through the town. I don't think so. I mean, this sounds like this. I, yes, this person is some degrees not right, obviously, in the head. Uh, but also, still, most crimes are committed by people who know the victims, right? It's unlikely to be someone who's just passing through. It's more likely to be an annoyed neighbor or an ex-husband, an ex-wife. Ex-husbands, let's be honest. Trying to be gender neutral there, but it's like, no, no, no. Look, when it comes to murder, we men have got it down. Like, we're, we're way more murdery. <laughs> 
Several potential perpetrators were picked up, both locals and outsiders, with histories of violent tendencies, but all had alibis. Bloodhounds were brought in to try and narrow down the search, but by then the crime scene had the scent of a hundred gawking idiots in it alongside the killer. Add to this the fact that the murderer would have had the opportunity to hop on a train out of town long before the bodies were even discovered, and the chances of a fast and dramatic conclusion were nil. Around 30 trains stopped in Villisca every day, several in the early hours of the morning. The killer could have had as much as five and a half hour head start on his pursuers. Once the hope of a quick capture evaporated, investigators and their men settled in for the long game, interviewing the townsfolk one by one to discover if anyone had the motive to harm the Moore family, which led them to the jealous competitor. First to stand trial today is a man named Frank Jones, local businessman and state senator. The connection between him and Josiah Moore began long ago, when the latter was the top salesman in Senator Jones's farm equipment company. After seven years at the firm, Josiah decided to strike out on his own in 1907, becoming the top competitor of his old boss. This doesn't seem like a good enough, I mean, unless Josiah's about to get up to some seriously shady business dealings. I don't think, I mean, although you're always like, yeah, it's not, I know we're dealing with someone who's obviously not right, but it's like, you gotta be so, so crazy to be like, yeah, yeah, he stole some of my business, so I murdered his family. <laughs> oh my God, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with all our criminals? Why? We need to invent some sort of brain scanning technology so we can find everyone who thinks like this and also, nah, no. <laughs> Simon, are you, <laughs> it's like, I feel like I literally just proposed like some 1984 like literally that is what what i was about to say like yeah we should like uh, that movie minority report we should lock people up before they commit crimes because they're extremely likely to uh unfortunately it's not it just doesn't work like that or fortunately i should say fortunately because that's obviously not justice it was well known that the two men ha harbored a lot of bad blood afterwards rumors even flew that josiah was secretly sleeping with senator jones's daughter-in-law by 1912 if they were ever on the same street the first one to spot the other would cross the road to avoid them yeah i mean that's just a fine rivalry of people who don't like each other like but that's not someone who doesn't like you enough to murder your family with an axe would that be enough of a reason for him to massacre the entire Moore family? It sounds extreme, but some in town thought that he could go that far. Holy sh**. The town quickly split into two factions, which were essentially drawn along sectarian lines. The Presbyterians attacked the senator, while his old Methodist congregation defended him. I have no idea what the difference between Presbyterians and Methodists are. I've heard of them both. I assume they're both some sort of, like, Christianity branches or something. Why, why? It's like, come on. How different could it possibly be? Why can't we all just get along? Along the former, the theory went that Jones, being a well-to-do gentleman of 57, must have hired someone else to carry out the killing for him. Because, of course, when you want to get a hit done clean, the first person you go to is the deranged maniac who pulverizes skulls and stays to cover every mirror. Yeah, he's like, that's the guy you trust not to tell everyone after. It's like, why'd you cover the mirrors? The senator told me to. He came to me in my dreams. What does the senator have to... Although... This guy's so, like, if you, if you hire that guy, again, why are we giving tips to criminals? But if you hire that guy to do your killing for you, and then he goes and does the killing, and it's just so brutal, and he, like, covers all the sheets, the mirrors with sheets, and then he's, like, literally, like, the senator came to me and told me to do it. The senator would be like, bro, what are you talking about? You're crazy. You covered the mirrors in the house. What's going on? Pretty good excuse. A private investigator named, J named James Wilkerson reckoned so. In fact, he was confident he had found the exact maniac hired by Jones, a man named William Mansfield, who 
in the years after the Bliskin murders, became the prime suspect in the axe murder of his own family in Illinois. Oh my. Yeah, okay. That seems like, look, axe murder once, axe murder twice. This was enough to drag the good senator into lengthy court proceedings before a grand jury, but sadly for the PI, his, his, his suspected hitman had a bulletproof alibi proven by his payroll records from a job over in Illinois, hundreds of miles away. So why did he have lengthy court proceedings? <laughs> I feel like if I'm that senator and they're like, yo, 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 did you hire this dude to, wait, how do you have an alibi for like hiring a guy to do a crime? Because you could have had a meeting at any point. It's not like they can nail down when that meeting took place. Anyway, let's not argue about that. But let's say that you had an alibi. You were like, yeah, yeah, I was at a job 100 miles away in the next town over or whatever. And probably not the next town over. 100 miles is quite far. Although this is America. There's big distances between stuff. Like 100 miles in the UK is like, yeah, you've passed through like 700 towns. Um, but if you have a solid alibi... How does it go to court? How do you have lengthy court proceedings? It's like, guys, I showed the first policeman who arrested me that I was in this town doing this job. Look, there were people there. There's payroll. Like, what's going on? Why am I still here? Why am I going to court? How many people do I have to show this payroll thing to? So the senator basically had to put his life on hold for no other reason than he had a bit of a disliking for a guy who happened to be on the wrong end of a massacre. No charges were brought against him, but by the time the whole affair was put to bed, Senator Jones was just Mr. Jones once Mr. Jones once again. His political career was demolished. It sucks to be that guy. It sucks how just there's some like crazy peaceful thing you're just going about your life you just don't like some guy and then his family gets murdered you just might hear that you'd be like ah and then your life gets destroyed even though the evidence is thin on the ground here some people believe that that's precisely because of how powerful a man jones was could it be that he pulled some strings to smother the case against him in the crib the father of the stillinger sisters believed so and took that belief to the grave okay i don't care i just we need evidence it's all great to be like oh we had motivation and you're like yeah yeah so what evidence do you have oh we had a lot of motivation it's like that's not evidence you need some evidence motivation is just one part of it or is it just a bunch of townsfolk needed an excuse for a bit of light sectarian bigotry and couldn't admit that they were wrong once you hear the case for our next suspect i think you might make up your mind okay i get the feeling the next suspect's gonna be very very strong evidence against them and one thing i like actually having you know some evidence rather than alibis saying otherwise the irreverent reverend oh my god is it the priest on the morning of the children's day service in Villisca, a steam train rolled into town and off it stepped a strange looking little man with a sharp face and pale leathery skin that stretched taut over his cheekbones when he smiled <laughs> callum is painting the picture of a guy who in my mind i'm like this guy's a murderer <laughs> just because he looks weird which is probably not an assumption we should jump to it's like yeah yeah when people are always like he looks like this or he looks like that it's like ah oh, that's really bad because it's a, no one chooses how they look i'm not allowed to talk on that as if this peculiar little fellow didn't stand out enough he also had an absolutely ridiculous accent being an englishman hey watch it callum although callum is also english so i mean yeah we do have i mean uh, yeah fair enough this was Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, not exactly a model Christian by any measure. After coming to the States in 1904, Kelly traveled with his wife, working as a traveling preacher across the Midwest. Along the way, he got himself into trouble for his various sexual deviancies, including peeping through people's windows and sending obscene material in the mail. Oh my god, seeing this guy with like this like leathery stretched skin when he smiles 
He sounds like a demon. Seeing that guy peering in my window be like, Ah! <laughs> what are you doing, Leatherface? Ah! The people of the little farming communities north of Aliska knew the Mad Reverend as much for his unsettling antics as his visiting sermons. It was widely known that he had once suffered a massive mental breakdown and even spent time in an institution. It was his involuntary flock who brought the preacher to the attention of the cops in the first place. Wait, how is a flock involuntary? I mean, I guess back in the day I was like, You better be going to church, son! But, uh, like, I don't know. It's still voluntary. It's really still voluntary. Uh, when they reported the rambling and incoherent letters he had been sending out in the weeks and months prior. When the cops started digging into his alibi, the stars aligned. Not only did he take the steam train to Velisca that day, he even went to the same church service as the Moors. Dressed in his Sunday best, Kelly peered on with that creepy leathery smile of his as each of the children got up one by one to give their recitations. Recitations? Recitations? Because you recite something. Recitations. I guess both are acceptable. Also, I don't care. Where he went after the festivities, no one knows. The next time anyone could confirm Kelly's whereabouts was 5.19am when he alighted from a train traveling away from Velisca and allegedly struck up a conversation with an elderly couple about the great tragedy of that weekend. An entire family slaughtered in their sleep. Such a terrible loss. The word alighted. I only learned about. I think I must have been like 20-something years old. And I was on some random like underground train on the London Underground. And it was like, the person said like on the on the radio announced me, you know, mind the gap and whatever. It was like, a light here for like Sloan Gardens or some shit like that. And I'm like, what? What does a light mean? <laughs> How have I not heard this word before? It means like changed or like get off and get on to like something else. And so I looked it up. And uh, I learned a new word, but I was like, Has I have I never heard this before? And they don't, it was like just some really specific parts of the London Underground. They don't use it everywhere. Normally they'll just be like, change here. But there was like, a light here for whatever and whatever. The bodies wouldn't be discovered for another three hours. Oh, wait, dude. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, he allegedly struck up a conversation with an elderly couple. But what motivations do the elderly couple have to lie? So he's telling them the story. Well, they could get their times wrong. But three hours before the bodies have been even found? Dude, what are you up to? Why would you be telling? Like, <laughs> yes, I know why. Because you're a crazy person. If true, that sounds like an open and shut book and we're not even half done for one kelly was left-handed and the blood spatters in the bedrooms and the at the moor house suggested to the coroner that the killer was too then as the cops interviewed the townsfolk some of them reported having seen the reverend stalking the moor family about town then there's the fact that although it was deemed no sexual assault took place mother sarah moore's nightgown had been raised up and her underwear removed i mean wait <laughs> i feel like that's a sexual assault isn't it it's like and it's an assault probably sexually motivated <laughs> is that okay uh that's definitely in keeping with what was already signed and sealed on kelly's psychological records and then a dry cleaner in town reported receiving a bag of blood-stained clothes from reverend kelly just days after the killings reverend kelly you're the worst killer uh, that i've ever that we've ever covered on casual Nah, that's not true we've covered some true stinkers but like i'm sorry i keep knocking over a bottle of water that i have down there <laughs> Um, I don't even know if you can hear that. If you can't hear it, then you're wondering what I'm talking about. But I just really loudly 
knocked a bottle of water over. Fascinating tangent fact, boy. Let's get back to the story. What was I saying? Yeah, this guy's a terrible serial killer. He doesn't bring his own axe. He doesn't bring his own lamp. He gets his clothes with blood on them laundered days after the attack. What are you up to? You've got to burn your clothes in a big barrel somewhere. Like, that's what... If I've, I've seen enough movies to know that that's what you've got to do. You idiot. He's not even trying to hide it. The man was so confident he'd get away with it, he reckoned he could save a few dollars that it would take to get a new shirt and trousers. How can you be confident you're going to get away with it? It seems really obvious that you did it. Like, everything points towards you. Much of this information was discovered by the investigators several weeks after the murders. Meanwhile, Reverend Kelly had been playing detective himself. Exactly two weeks after the murders, local law enforcement was offering a tour of the Moore property to bring concerned parties up to speed on the evidence so far. Among those who showed up was DCI Kelly, Scotland Yard's finest, who was, of course, Reverend Kelly with absolutely no disguise. <laughs> Wait. He went there pretending to be a cop? Dude, you're like the leathery-faced creepy guy. You're a, you're a, I don't want to say pillar of the community because that implies that you're a good person. But like, you're known in the community because you're the crazy leather-faced preacher. You're like the guy who looks like a serial killer. You can't just turn up and be like, hello, I am a policeman. It'd be like, mate, we know you're the creepy reverend. <laughs> Get out of here. Because of course, whenever shit goes down in Iowa, the London Metropolitan Police always get their top detectives on the first steamer across the Atlantic post-haste. Wait, really? I totally thought Callum was being sarcastic here, but it does seem that he showed up without a disguise, pretending that he was a detective from Scotland Yard in Iowa. Dude, do they, what are you gonna be like? Ah, oh, no, 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 you, I just look like that guy. I'm English, we all look alike. You check out those janky teeth, yo. Was this Kelly returning to the scene of the crime, perhaps for a proper look at the carnage he unleashed in the darkness? It does seem to fit pretty neatly. The coverings on the mirrors could be explained by the deep shame of a religious killer himself. He was raised by vicars who torment, who was tormented by his own deviancies. He covers the faces to hide from his victims, then covers the mirrors to hide from himself. In case it's not clear, I've basically already made up my mind here. I sentence Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly to be hung by the neck until dead. However, the question remains, why didn't the courts agree? What? 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 The courts didn't agree with this? This guy's guilty as hell. Hang him! Kelly was finally indicted for the murders in the summer of 1917, and while awaiting trial, the cops even managed to wrangle a confession out of him. What is going on? How did you. Uh, did I misread this? No, the question remains why didn't the courts agree? He got away with it somehow. I mean, spoiler alert. Uh, quote for the confession, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind and I picked up the axe, went into the house and killed them. God whispered to me, suffer the children to come on to me. Dude, that's so creepy. That is so creepy. Also, as we've said many times before, if you talk to God, that's a-okay. If God talks to you, not okay. Having fun. But somehow, by the divine grace of the Almighty, he never ended up at the gallows for it. The confession was later shot down in court after claims of police brutality, and the prosecutor's case fell apart not once, but twice. Kelly was acquitted by two juries, one in September and again in November. Perhaps he was the victim of some widespread scapegoating by the desperate and devastated Villisca community on account of being a notorious regional oddball, or maybe he bumbled through a series of unfortunate coincidences that made an innocent, albeit pervy, preacher appear like a monster. I know all the evidence is circumstantial, but it is some mega, megaly strong circumstantial evidence. Why can't, why haven't we fingerprinted this dude yet? Why, come on. 
Oh, because all the crime scene got ruined by those idiots and the police incompetence of not keeping people out of the house. Surprise, surprise. Um, how, what evidence could there be to really nail this guy? You've got to nail this guy. Come on. It's clearly him. It's clearly the weird Leatherface guy. And I know I was always like, don't jump to conclusions based on people's appearance, but it's this guy. It definitely is. Just before we continue today's video, let me give a big thank you to today's fantastic sponsor, Mac Weldon. You're a busy guy, so stop thinking about what to wear and just embrace the radically efficient Mac Weldon daily wear system. Oh my god, speaking of, I'm actually doing that right now. Before I sat down to... I just entirely by coincidence everything that I'm wearing right now other than my shoes and socks even though Mack Weldon do make socks I don't think they make shoes is Mack Weldon I'm wearing their jumper it's a it's a gray sweater I can't remember what it's called I'm wearing one of their polo shorts uh, shirts most importantly I'm wearing their radius pants these are what we'd call trousers in the UK and they're just amazing they look smart so I wear them to work I wear them out about with like a smart jacket and stuff but they're also insanely comfortable Mack Weldon's daily wear system is a selection of clothes rooted in smart design, made with performance fabrics, and built to work together. From breathable t-shirts and polos to stylish button-ups and shorts, underwear and beyond, Mack Weldon makes it easy for you to dress for work, leisure and play, or wherever your summer takes you. I guess summer feels very out of date, guys. It's moving into winter. And, uh, well, yeah, like I just said, I'm wearing a jumper from Mack Weldon. I also have an amazing hoodie from them. Uh, which is like a zip on the front. It's fantastic. I've worn their stuff for years. They've been a long-time sponsor of mine, and I love all their stuff. I've got like three different pairs of these Radius pants. They're pretty much every anything I wear. Like, I used to wear like jeans. I used to wear like chinos. Now I just wear Mac Weldon's Radius pants. I'm not even joking. They're just... Uh, it's just all I wear because they're smart and comfortable. It's just perfect. Talk about how the clothes are designed to work together. Well, they do. Obviously, I'm wearing them all together right now. Um, it's just, It's just super comfortable. It's just better. It's just better. I really honestly feel like I could go for a run in these clothes. I mean, obviously, then I'd have to wash them. But just the flexibility of of the fabric, it's cooling, it's well ventilated. It's just perfect. So buy some stuff from Mac Weldon's daily wear system. You'll get 20% off your first order. Just visit MacWeldon.com slash casual and enter the promo code casual. That's MacWeldon.com slash casual. Promo code casual for 20% off. Mac Weldon. Radically efficient wardrobing. I like that. It is radically efficient. It's just better. Check it out and uh, let's get back to the episode. The Serial Killer. If you're content to just let the reverends off the hook, there's one last possibility. The original theory that some anonymous wandering vagrant may have slaughtered the Moors, then went on to, then went on his way, is still a perfectly valid one. Not only that, what if he killed again? If this were true, then the Villisca Axe murders may have been the work of one of America's very first recorded serial killers. In 1913, a pattern was discovered by Special Agent Matthew McClary of the Justice Department. He noticed a string of similar crimes across the Midwest in 1911 and 1912, a family axed in Colorado springs a brutal steel pipe massacre in monmouth two more slaughters this time in kansas the last of these happening just days before the ballista axe murders uh, massacre i'm actually watching i think someone was killed with an axe in that show like i think yeah 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 it's a tv show called you and it's on the third season i saw the first season and it was good and then I saw this. I started watching the second season. It was exactly the same as the first season, so I stopped watching it. And then me and my wife kind of ran out of TV show to watch. We're like, oh, what should we watch? I don't know. Let's watch this You show. So we started season three. And it's like, it's just so unrealistic because I'm like, mm, these serial killers. 
way too competent. No serial killer gets away with it. But I mean, they do. I guess there are serial killers out there who got away with it for a really long time. But I'm just like, these guys just don't seem good enough to be getting away with these crimes for that long. Also, my, my bigger problem with that TV show is everyone in it is a piece of <laughs> There's like, every main character is just so deeply unlikable that I'm watching that show and I'm like, wait, who am I supposed to root for? Who am I supposed to get behind? Because I want them all to be caught or like to have their comeuppance because they're all either serial killers or just nasty, not very nice people. Uh, so, I mean, I don't want them to be murdered or something, but it's just like, I just don't care. I just don't like you. I just, you're, you seem bad, especially the two main characters who are actual serial killers who have murdered lots of innocent people. So I'm like, who am I supposed to like here? This isn't Dexter, where it's like, yeah, okay, the main guy's a serial killer, but he's only killing bad guys. Then you're like, yeah, don't get caught, Dexter. Come on, take out that guy who escapes justice. This is just like, why do I care? Why do I? I hope he gets caught, and then I can stop watching this TV show, which I somehow keep watching. So what are we talking about? Oh, yeah, this is The Casual Criminalist, not Simon Reviews TV shows that he doesn't like. But even that wasn't the coup de grace for this killer. That would be his homecoming. If Adrian McClary's theory is correct, then the killer's trail led right to his childhood home in December 1912 when he brutally murdered his own mother and grandmother in Missouri. It was for that last crime alone that the cops arrested him. Henry Lee Moore, an ex-con, well, same name as the previous guys, coincidence that who were murdered an ex-con who was released from confinement just months before the sequence began the idea of a deranged axe murderer cutting a bloody path back to his mum's house is a perfect slasher movie there but as far as real life theory goes it may be a little too easy moore was essentially a drifter there couldn't have been many records of where he was at any one time you could basically place him anywhere if you wanted to whatever is most convenient for the theory yeah i mean it's just stupid i mean of course it's possible but it's like there's no evidence it's just like yeah 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 there's a serial killer somewhere in the united states is there anything else to, to support that theory no 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 but it could be yeah or it could be the psycho leatherface vicar or i mean come on come on why are we even considering this and the fact that an axe appears in all but one of those crimes is almost completely redundant. I mean, those things would have been left sitting out in back gardens of every house with a wood-fired furnace, stove, or fireplace, which 110 years ago in the American Midwest would have covered pretty much every house in every town. Killers didn't even have to bother bringing their own weapons in those days. Their victims just politely left one out back and left the door unlocked. How quaint. So now, I've got, a, I've got like a, a holiday house in the woods and uh, there's an axe out there because it's like there's a big like wood-fired fireplace in there <laughs> wood fire oh yeah i guess you could fire a fireplace by coal i'm like why do you have to specify it was with wood i'm like well yeah there's other options and now that axe sits out there on one of those axe chopping blocks <laughs> next time i go there i'm definitely <laughs> definitely gonna be putting that axe just like inside the door just you know because i'm afraid <laughs> So if that common link is basically meaningless, what about the other key identifiers of the Velisca axe murderer? None of them appear to have been repeated. All those little idiosyncrasies like the uneaten meal on the table, the bowl of bloody water, the cupboard mirrors, the bacon. Our man was pretty damn explicit with his calling cards. Are we to assume that all that mentalness was just a temporary little fad that the serial killer got over in a night? Yeah, it all just is like, it's not this guy. It's definitely not this guy. Why are we considering this guy?
This doesn't only stand for Henry Lee Moore either. Over the years, there have been plenty of attempts to connect Velisca to a longer serial killer pattern, and they all seem patchy at best. To me, it seems like the killer's processing of the Velisca murder site was so oddly specific, you'd expect to see rituals repeated with the exact same neurotic precision, which is why we won't spend any more time dealing with the various iterations of this over the years. They all rely on a lot of inference to draw the patterns. Yeah, we've already sp we spent like a page on this. It's enough. It's not this guy let's move on and with that our exploration of the facts of the liska axe murderer case is basically at a close we're no closer to putting a fine point on the culprit and i'm sorry to say that this is where the case stalled out over a hundred years ago and has remained since however that's not where the story of 508 east second street ends the haunting of morehouse oh no we've got two two and a half pages of ghosts ah <laughs> Oh, we're back again at the beginning of that dark, solemn week in 1912. Almost the entirety of Aliska's 2,500 townsfolk have come out to pay their respects to the horse-drawn carriage procession carrying the Moore family to their final resting place. However, many believed that they weren't quite put to rest that day. Okay, here we go. Here we go. I'll humor this. I'll humor it rather than skipping over it. Someone wrote in a review for this, because I do read the reviews, that uh, they find it, they don't like how I'm so dismissive of all the ghosty f And they're like, Simon, you should at least consider it because people who like true crime often also like the ghosty shit as well. And I'm like, that just seems stupid. <laughs> I mean, yeah, of course. Like, you, as someone who creates stuff, yes, you do have to pander to your audience a little bit and do things that the audience want to see. I'm not saying it's even a bad thing. It's like, audience suggestions are good and it's like good to take critical feedback positively and implement it. But also... I'm just so, like, don't believe in the ghosty stuff. If I even considered that, it would just come across as, like, massively disingenuous. Because I'd be like, yeah, or well, maybe it was ghosts. Uh, it was, it, maybe, it was, oh, it was not ghosts. Tales spread around the town that the abandoned house was still occupied by the tormented spirits of those who had died there, and the stories never let up once a new set of brave owners took up residence at 508. In fact, over the past 100 years, they've only kept accumulating and they've spiraled out of control and become ridiculous because of course they have because that's how all of these urban legend ghost stories are multiple owners have reported phenomena such as ghostly cries from the bedrooms clothing ripped out of drawers and strewn over the floor doors slamming shut without reason much of the activity allegedly emanates from the attic where some still believe that the killer hid out waiting for the family to fall asleep and it appears as if whatever's lingering there isn't exactly friendly one previous occupant claims that he felt a hand clamp around his wrist as he sharpened a knife which spun in his hand and cut him sounds sounds like you just had a little knifey accident in the kitchen doesn't it i mean we all cut ourselves occasionally big knives like chop 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 ow it's not a ghost it's just you cut yourself idiot if you stay in the house past midnight you might see a strange fog drift through some rooms at the precise moment the murders occurred or spot a shadowy accident at the end of your bed spooky stuff all of this was enough to force one family out just one day after moving in is that true is that even true i mean on the, there must be property records so i guess it just sounds like such a lie one day one day when the ghost hunters rocked up at the door to bring martha and darwin Dar darwin darwin then up to speed on all the blood guts and haunting we've just covered they were stunned nobody had warned them that their quaint little domestic history museum was actually the true final resting place of eight miserable specters so did they call a priest to purify the house and finally lay the demented spirits of more family to rest did they f 
Oh, they smell some money. They're going to turn this into like a ghost museum for sure. Wait, did we talk about that in the beginning? I feel like I know this for sure. I'm so confident about this. Instead, they slapped a sign outside reading Velisca Axe Murderer House and started charging $10 a pop for entry because, of course, the tortured souls of those poor innocent victims are trapped there anyway. So why not turn their eternal prison into a spooky ghost zoo? It's what they would have wanted. <laughs> it's definitely what I would have done in this position. I mean, I'd have just lived there because I don't believe in any of this shit. But, uh, my, I, this is an even better idea. Brilliant. Good for them. Pretty soon, the paranormal enthusiasts in the area were jumping at that wonderfully affordable chance to contact the other side, solve the cold case through the power of spirit magic, or just get a good scare. And they continue to visit to this day for a frankly extortionate $428. Some even stay the night to conduct their research in the hours most crucial to the case. Owner Martha said to the house, $428 a night? What the fuck is this, the Four Seasons? I feel like there's something there. If indeed there are spirits, you have to realize that six of them are children. I don't know if the murderer still exists there, but there have been a few things that have happened that aren't exactly calming, but I don't like to dwell on it. All right, yeah, 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 sell your stupid ghost house. Well, you would say that, love. Yeah, <laughs> would kind of kill the business otherwise. Sounds to me like a few creaky pipes, drafty windows, and a dumbass who cut his finger and blamed it on a ghost. I'm no expert, of course. Unlike the Travel Channel's esteemed Ghost Adventures crew, who filmed an episode of their paranormal investigation show there in 2010, they claim to have recorded the voice of the murderer himself, saying, I killed six kids, which is strange because literally nobody suggested the killer died there. But if we go any further down this rabbit hole of half-baked spirit science, we'll be here until next Halloween. Ah, I think we've shown plenty of evidence that there is a hell of a lot to be terrified of out there without having to dive into the supernatural, killer drifters, perverted preachers, and the horrific violence which flesh and blood hunters are capable of enacting on each other when at their most vicious and depraved. Well, I'm not sure any of those would make for a good Halloween costume. Ah, the, 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 the leather face dude sounds like a good Halloween costume. <laughs> Creepy f wrap up and that brings us to the end of the tale of the Velisca axe murders a century of gory crime scene reports dramatic memories and dubious hauntings it was a crime that might have been solved were it not for the catastrophic irresponsibility of a bunch of gawking locals who contaminated the scene early on perhaps stealing away any chance for justice for the Moore family. As a result, we're left today balancing a few possibilities. Whether you believe that the senator managed to wrangle his way out with his connections, no, he just had a good alibi. Why is that so hard to get your head around? Or some serial slasher was annihilating families across America? Or like me, you're convinced the evidence against the reverend seems to be a bit too clear to be ignored? Either way, it does, even if it's not, even if it is all circumstantial, which it obviously is, it's just so much more than the basically zero evidence that exists against the other guys. There's like the rev, the, the, the senator is like, well, he didn't like the guy very much. And that's it. Had an alibi. And then there's the ridiculous axe murderers traveling across America. Or, or it's the other guy who was like, there was tons of circumstantial evidence about. Good Lord. The reality is that 110 years later, all we'll ever have is speculation. In closing for today, I'm not a big believer in the supernatural. Good. But maybe it's better to be safe than sorry. If I ever become the victim of a brutal murder, please call an exorcist or something before anyone tries to monetize my tormented soul. I'd rather not spend my afterlife chasing idiots around with tape recorders. Callum, if you're brutally murdered, I mean, I don't want to like... That would be a pretty epic episode of The Casual Criminalist. Like... That would get some attention. We'd be in the media. I mean, I'd be in the media because you'll be dead for sure. I mean, I'm not hoping for your death, Callum. <laughs>
just to be absolutely clear, that was entirely sarcastic. Dismembered appendices. Number one. On the exact same night of the Moore murders, there was an incident at another house in Villisca which suggested that the killer might have tried to kill again that quickly. Local telephone operator Zena Delaney might have been the axeman's second victim that night when she heard footsteps approaching her door and watched the handle start rattling. Thankfully, being a single woman, she was one of the few in town who actually locked her door like a sensible person. Number two. 1912 wasn't the only time the cops had been called out to 508 East 2nd Street. In 2014, they were called to interrupt one of the supernatural sleepovers. A team of paranormal researchers were playing Ghostbusters when one cried out for help. When the others found him, he had stabbed himself in the chest. That's dedication to the grift. <laughs> I'll give him that. Yeah, that is so weak and stupid, and I hate this. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I do hope you enjoyed it, other than, of course, the you know, absolutely mandatory bashing on ghost stories, then in that case, if you love ghosts, if you're like Simon, I wish you'd explored the ghost angle more, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a bad review. If you enjoyed this show, though, we do appreciate, or I do appreciate, good reviews. I'm not sure how Callum feels about them. Probably good about good reviews, I guess. Probably would. Uh, yeah, leave us a review if you're watching this on YouTube. Hello there. Please smash that like button. Make sure you're subscribed. And... As always, I'll see you next time.